Bad Booty, the Fight CRC podcast. Colorectal cancer patients are often faced with circumstances related to their disease that aren't openly discussed. In Tabuti, the Fight CRC podcast, we delve into those topics that are sometimes considered controversial, trending, or just plain interesting. Listen in as we talk to experts, patients, and caregivers who provide accurate, real, and practical information for cancer survivors. It's time for us to bring these issues to light. Listen in from anywhere, from your car to the chemo chair. To suggest a podcast topic, email answers at fightcrc.org. Hello, everyone. This is Sharon Worrell with Fight Colorectal Cancer. Welcome to the Fight CRC Tabuti Podcast. This month, we're joined by Chaplain Michael Esselin from the Sims Mann UCLA Center for Integrative Oncology. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Michael, can you give us a general overview of your work as a chaplain in an integrative cancer center? Certainly. Our, our cancer center tends to largely the ambulatory cancer population at UCLA. So that means that I'm visiting patients in the infusion clinics while they're getting chemotherapy. I'm seeing them in their doctor's offices and meeting them for an appointment. I run a monthly spiritual reflection group at the center called the Circle of Reflection in which each month we investigate a different topic, spiritually speaking, something like forgiveness or Tomorrow we're meeting and we're talking about lighthouses as a metaphor for those things in our lives that alert us to where danger is but also show us the way at the same time. And maybe that's a, a person, maybe it's a, a setting in nature, maybe it's a song. So there will be people in the group that will be patients in treatment, patients out of treatment, there will be maybe some bereaved people, there will be loved ones of those patients. So that's a bit about what I do. I meet people individually as one might go see a therapist. They would make an appointment and come see me for an hour or so to talk about what's going on with them. So you mentioned your, your group is a spirituality group meeting. What do you mean by spirituality? What Does that encompass religion? That is a word that is bandied around a lot and means something different to everyone. In a population I serve at UCLA, I'd say the lion's care of patients identify as some flavor of spiritual, not religious. That is consistent with a lot of poll numbers of how Americans are tending to identify themselves spiritually these days. But it is an ambiguous term and it doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. For myself, I'd have to go to the Latin root of the word spiritus, which simply means breath. So for me, whatever breathes life into your life, what is it that gives it meaning? For some people, that might mean their relationship to God or religious community or practice, but for some people, it might mean their job or their dog or a great round of golf or their family. That, to me, is what is one's spirituality. And when one gets a diagnosis of cancer, often that thing that gave life meaning before now seems meaningless, or I don't have access to it in quite the same way. If my life was all about running, and I can't run anymore, then that becomes a spiritual crisis. So to me, a chaplain is one who walks beside one uh, going on a spiritual journey like that. How do you talk to patients about spirituality, like identifying whether or not they're religious or not? Because oftentimes you hear chaplain and 
And the, the assumption is that there's a religious aspect to that. How do you work that with patients? It's a little tricky because you're right. A lot of people have preconceptions of what the word means. They see it attached to religion or to a particular religion. Some people will say, oh, no thanks, I'm Jewish, or no thanks, we're Muslim, or no thanks, I'm an atheist. So I need to backpedal a little bit and say what spirituality means to me and that I'm here just to have a, a conversation. To me, just finding out where a patient is right now today in this moment in the recliner in the infusion clinic is doing a spiritual assessment. They might be more upset about trying to find a parking place that made them late for work that day or dropping their kid off at school and their kid was sick and and that that's what's consuming them right now. And my willingness to come close to that is a doorway into the deeper questions of what gives their life meaning or what gives their life meaning today would mean finding a place to park. It can be very small. But to me, I put my faith in the connectedness into being able to make a connection with the person that they are not alone for this moment in time, that somebody sees them and uh, witnesses them. That's an interesting point, Michael. You know, we hear from a lot of patients that there's a feeling of isolation, perhaps also a feeling of doubting of long-held religious or spiritual beliefs. What kind of advice would you give to a patient or even a survivor that's feeling isolated or feeling doubt? Well, one of my favorite quotes by a, a German theologian, Paul Tillich, is the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty. And doubt, to me, is a, an indispensable component to any faith journey. If we were so certain of what was absolutely true, and I know that this is what's going to happen, it's not faith anymore. It's certainty. Faith is kind of contingent upon how we hold and integrate that, that piece of doubt. So for me, the first step with a patient, if they're saying, I believe this all my life, I've been with devout Christians who, when faced with the end of their life, will say, I don't know that I believe in heaven. I always thought I did, but I'm not sure what comes next. And then they can beat themselves up for saying, but I, I guess I'm not a good person, I'm not a good Christian. To me, a part of that is coming to peace with the doubt and seeing that as part of the spiritual journey. It's, it's not at all uncommon for long-held beliefs, as you suggest, to be rattled to the, to the ground, to fall apart altogether. I remember one patient who was devoutly Christian, so much so that she refused to be taken down by her cancer at all. I'd see her in the clinic and she said, I have my tap shoes on today. I'm so happy. I'm going to go meet the Lord soon. And one could look at that and say, well, isn't that wonderful that her faith is keeping her afloat? But her husband is sitting right there who is anticipating the loss of his wife of 40, 50 years, and he's grieving, and she's not remotely present for his loss. So there's a spiritual crisis in that. I see people that would identify as secular or agnostic who say, gosh, I, I'm so envious of these people that have such strong faith and to see them through. And I am often uh, remind them that sometimes those people have the bigger crisis in some ways because they go through life so certain that the Lord's got my back, I'm going to be healed. And then when they are not healed, all of a sudden it's a collapse. What's true now? What's true about God? It's an interesting perspective and just a reminder that, you know, everybody has a different perspective and a different background when it comes to their spirituality and their religious 
beliefs and how cancer affects that. Yes. Michael, you had mentioned spiritual distress a little earlier. What would you recommend to patients or family members that are experiencing spiritual distress? Well, that's a, it's a complicated question. For the family member, first off, one thing that I see a lot is I don't have a right to my feelings or to my distress because the cancer patient has it worse, so I have to put all that aside. And a cancer diagnosis happens not just to a patient, it happens to a whole family. And the grieving of what's been lost with a diagnosis, even if it's a perfectly treatable cancer, life will never be the same again. And that's true for the patient as well as for the family. So for me, part of what I can offer a family member is the grace to just have their feelings and have a place to explore them where it may not feel safe or comfortable to share them with their loved one who is sick because they feel like it's too burdensome for them. It's often such an odd dance because the patient often craves that the caregiver will be more forthcoming with their own fears and feelings because the intimacy is what matters so much. And yet the family member holds back thinking, I don't want to burden them with my stuff. I'm not the one with cancer. And what the patient really wants, and what I believe spiritually we all want, is connection, is that intimacy. People sometimes ask me, how can I do this job when I have to say goodbye to people, patients, after I fall in love with them? I've known them sometimes for five, ten years. And the answer to me is because the intimacy is worth it. That's where the gifts in life are, that we, that we can connect. A number of years ago I spoke at a cancer support community and there was a question and answer period after the presentation and this one woman asked me what the meaning of life is, as if I had that answer. And she didn't wait for my answer while I tried to concoct one, she wanted to give me hers, which is as it should be. And she said, well I believe that everyone wants to be known as in seeing, and that was her meaning of life. And at the time, my judging mind was kicking in, and I thought, well, that's way too simplistic, and I'm glad you found your answer, but <laughs> it's much deeper than that. But I have quoted her countless times in the years since that I think she's right on the money, that just to be seen, to be witnessed, to say, you matter to me, I see where you are, it's almost all there is, that I'm not alone and that you see me. And that's true for the caregiver, the family member, as well as the patient. Everybody wants to be seen and known. And it can be in some ways much harder for the caregiver because they're so powerless. They're facing their own powerlessness as their loved one is suffering so greatly. When we're suffering with our own mess, we can kind of buckle up, take a deep breath and swallow it. Okay, it hurts. I'm going to deal with it. But the loved one sitting by, anybody who loves an animal knows that. You watch the animal suffer and it just kills you. The animal is handling it. The one who's watching is dying inside. Thank you. That's a, a really interesting point. Michael, you talked earlier about spirituality, encompassing the things that bring us joy and help us feel connected. How do you encourage patients and survivors to incorporate these personal things into their day-to-day? How do you empower people to continue doing the things that bring joy and meaning into their lives? Well, that's that's the centerpiece of what I do, but I often don't couch it in the language of, okay, now we're going to have the spiritual part of the discussion. <laughs> uh, now we're going to have the chaplain part. To me, the whole discussion is the spiritual piece, whether I use that language or not. More often than not, I'm introducing myself to someone 
in the infusion clinic who has not asked to see me. I'm just making rounds, or a nurse might have said, that woman over there seemed kind of distressed. She was crying this morning. Will you go say hi? So I make my introduction and say I'm from the Sims Man Center, and these are the services we provide. Do you want to get acquainted a little bit? Well, sure, have a seat. And just the talking about what's going on with you today is the beginning of the spiritual conversation. If we, it might be a month or two down the road before we find out, does she believe in God? Is she angry with God? What did I do to deserve this? First, we have to develop the trust and the relationship, which is all part of the spiritual connection. In your experience, what are the primary spiritual challenges that may confront someone who's received a cancer diagnosis? I'm a good person. I did life the right way. I hear this a lot from folks all over the belief map. Religious folks, secular folks, it seems like we all got dipped in this tea that life is just and fair. And when somebody messes with that, our suffering goes through the roof. And to me, the place to interrupt the suffering is to letting go of the notion that it was just and fair in the first place. And intellectually, we may know that kids die in tsunamis, holocausts happen, uh, tornadoes wipe out whole towns. It's not fair, it's not just, but it happens. But still, this is me, God, this is me now. I'm not supposed to have cancer. So wrestling with that, I think, is one of the primary spiritual challenges that confronts everybody on the cancer journey, religious and secular alike. Also coming to terms with powerlessness. We grow up in a world, particularly in American culture, where we are told that you can be, do, and have anything you want if you're willing to work for it. Everything is possible. And those ideas are also infused into religious traditions. So how can I come to peace with the idea that it isn't fair. So when this awful diagnosis happens, I have to, something has to go, and so a new understanding of who or what God is can be born that is large enough to include this new set of circumstances. Do you speak often with patients with the belief system that everything happens for a reason? Always, and that, and a lot of people across the belief spectrum hold that belief that everything happens for a reason. Even if they're secular, agnostic, or fundamentalist, oh yes, God has a plan, or no, I just sort of think things happen the way they're supposed to, and it's a comforting thought. Now the reason might be a religious reason, like God's testing my faith, or the Lord's bringing me closer to him through his suffering, but it's often a more uh, spiritual, less religious thing. Uh, this was a wake-up call. It's a reminder not to take life for granted, to focus on what really matters. And now that I've got it, I expect to be healed. Or even in a completely secular way, the reason might be it's because I didn't take care of myself. I didn't exercise enough. And so if I do that or eat a macrobiotic diet, then I'll be okay. Uh, I love the way one patient, I remember he was a a writer and he had this lovely Irish accent. And that's one of the questions I often ask in visiting a patient because it helps give me a sense of where they are spiritually, to do a spiritual assessment. I will often ask just what you said. I say a lot of people believe things happen for a reason. A lot of people think it's all random. What do you think? It's a real quick shorthand to figure out where somebody is and how they hold their life. And when I asked this man, this Irish man, he said, I believe we write and we are written. 
And I love the duality of that, the kind of idea that maybe some of, some of it's in the cards for us, and some of it we create ourselves, but it's just out of our hands. And that's for me personally, just kind of how I carry it. And to me, I, I, I've got my own kind of hard-won wisdom that if I knew what I was going to learn before I took this class, I never would have had to take the class. So I kind of resist the urge to figure out what the reason is now. I'll often ask patients, so if you believe that this cancer happened for a reason, what's the reason? I don't know, but I hope someday to find out. Well, I can hope for that too with them, but I caution against being so certain, oh, I believe it's because I've got to save my sister's soul, or it's because I've got to change careers, it's, or it's because I've been a horrible person and God's punishing me. I hear it all. And as a chaplain, what's your role in addressing these concerns with patients, survivors, family members, and friends who are experiencing spiritual distress? I'm someone who walks beside them and isn't afraid of the scary subjects, isn't afraid of the part that says, maybe I'm done, maybe it is time for me to go. And they can't always say that to their loved one because it would feel like a betrayal or some kind of way of dismissing them and their value, but they need some place to say, I think I'm done. Or my family, it's very important to my family, they're devoutly Catholic, and, and but I don't know that there's heaven. I don't believe in God, and I don't know what to say about it. So I'm a place, somebody to hold your stuff with you while you walk. It's just like, here, let me carry that for you for a little bit. Are there any final, any recommendations you can give to patients that are they're curious to learn more, they'd like to reach out to a chaplain or, or a spiritual or religious leader, where might they be able to find some of these resources? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. Because I can say, well, yes, go to your faith community, but sometimes I've found patients get a lot of support there, and sometimes they get more judgment. Um, I'm not one to say with one faith community or another. Um, I definitely put a lot of store in support group community networks. Some people don't want to go to groups, they don't want to identify as a cancer patient, there's really sick people there, I don't want to go there, I'm not one of them. But at their best, with a good facilitator, whether it's called a spiritual group or not, the connection I believe that one can have is indeed spiritual. How could a patient bring this up with their oncology team? How might you recommend a patient bring this up with their providers? Well, the sad reality is in an outpatient environment, there isn't often the resources within the medical community to address those things. That if a patient's in the hospital, there's going to be a social worker, there's going to be a chaplain available. If a patient's in an outpatient setting, there's no guarantee that there's any kind of service more likely than not, there is not, to take those kinds of questions. I'd certainly advise bringing it up to the oncologist or the nurse practitioner, I'm really in distress over this. I, I need to talk to somebody about life and expectations, and hopefully that oncologist would not dismiss them and maybe find resources in their community or whatnot, or just listen, just again being seen in that moment. But the way medical care is these days, they're on a time schedule often, and they want you in and want you out, and don't want to deal with that. So in our setting, when a patient brings that up to an oncologist, oncologist knows to call us. Say, we've got this patient in trouble, somebody call him, please. Or come to the clinic, they're crying right now, can you come upstairs and be with them? I just gave them some bad news. 
So that's an ideal situation. But even at that, we don't have the staff to see everybody that comes in and out of that clinic. There's over 60 infusion chairs in one clinic, and there's one chaplain, me. I can't see everybody. Sounds like you recommend connecting with a social worker or a local cancer support community to hold space for patients and survivors who are experiencing levels of distress. Any last comments for the listeners out there, Michael? Just to be reminded that you're more than your cancer. You're more than your problems. I had a patient a month or so ago who has a not so great diagnosis and a, and a fairly rough road ahead, but her concern right now in this moment was this nasty divorce I'm going through. Her Everything was about that. I kept trying to bring the subject back, but what's going on? I was just getting acquainted with her. What's your diagnosis? No, but you're not going to believe what happened in the divorce. So the end of the visit was kind of like to be reminded that you are more than this problem. That is the spiritual care. You're more than your cancer and you're more than your divorce. Even the idea of the language of fighting it and battling it, I struggle with that because there are patients say I'm battling cancer and I have other patients who say I don't want to use that language anymore. It's so pervasive we don't even hear it. Oh, she's fighting cancer. You read an obituary. He lost his fight with lung cancer. I don't think it needs to be seen with that. I have one patient who uses the language, I'm engaged with my cancer. I'm on this journey with my cancer. I'm not fighting it. One woman said, I can't afford to be at war with my own body anymore. What if my body's doing the best that it can? I want to love my body. I want to love it so well that that cancer just releases and goes back to wherever it came from. What if she's just walking the journey with it? She's more than her cancer. There was one fellow in the clinic who I had a relationship with for some time and he had colon cancer and uh, metastatic and he had been a high power kind of corporate guy and toward the end I bumped into him in the hallway out in front of the infusion clinic and I was just having a check in and he stopped me and said, oh just a minute because there was another patient coming up to the clinic door with a walker in, you know, so taking some effort to get the door open. He says, just a moment. And he goes over to hold the door open for the woman. And when he comes back to me, he says, you see, Michael, that, that's the way I see my job now, to be kind. That's what I do. To me, that's somebody who got it. His cancer did not beat him. He found a way to get to the very essence of life, which was just kindness and reaching out and connecting to the whatever capacity he could and I will never forget him. One of my patients that comes to my group every month shared with me something she had read online, sometimes that's where the best wisdom comes, about how the Siri lady on your iPhone or whoever on your Google Maps when you're following directions to get somewhere and you miss the turn that the lady directed you to and you might feel a little kind of panic like oh I missed my turn and I gotta make a U-turn and, and she, I, I gotta catch up with her directions or something and she very calmly just goes to the next thing okay go up two blocks and turn right she's not getting all distressed she's just recalculating and recalibrating but with a kind of detachment I think it's the most beautiful metaphor for where people find themselves with this life-threatening kind of a diagnosis. We have to recalibrate our expectations of what we thought life was. 
we have to recalibrate our attachment to our old life. I hear it all the time. I want my old life back. I want my old life back. It's Even if you get cured, it's never going to be the way it was. You will never be a person who didn't have cancer. But my future might be different. I had these expectations and they're not met. Now I can suffer a lot if I hang on to them and say, yeah, 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 but this isn't fair and this wasn't supposed to happen. But it happened. And the sooner I can be like that Siri lady and just say, okay, well now we're going to go up three blocks and we'll turn left and we'll turn right and then we'll do this. And to be prepared to find happiness and joy and gratification and meaning in places I never would have dreamed of looking. Like being able to hold up the, open the door for somebody in trouble. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael, for sharing such wonderful stories and for sharing your insight with our listeners. Well, thank you, Sharon. Anytime. Thanks for tuning in. Please remember that this information is for educational purposes only and all medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. For more resources, visit us on the web at fightcolorectalcancer.org.